0: Hey everyone! You're listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Stoa Mars Hill podcast. I'm Sophie Klomperens.
1: And I'm Raymond Docapil.
0: Unreliable Narrators is a podcast hosted by Stoa alumni where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing one of the most popular murder mystery novels of all time, Agatha Christie's 1939 novel, And Then There Were None. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable
1: Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strung.
0: Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys stayed up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going through a door. One stubbed his toe, and then there were four. Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up, and then there was one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself, and then there were none. Welcome to the podcast where we read you creepy poetry right away.
1: (laughs) I think that's a great way to start us off. So what are we talking about today, Sophie?
0: Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, which, uh, to be totally clear, so before we recorded or started recording this podcast, uh, we both... Reread, or I reread, and then there were none because I had read it many years ago. Raymond had never read it before. So, in preparation for this podcast, before Raymond had finished reading it, I made an entire document of notes for my reread. And on the first page of that document, I wrote in very big letters <laughs> in like size 50 font or whatever Raymond, don't read this document <laughs> because it has spoilers in it.
1: And then it turned out. That she was completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> because she forgot the plot twist at the end. <laughs> so, so all, all my th- notes
0: were the opposite of spoilers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they were actually red herrings, which is uh which may may be part of your whole master plan.
0: It really was. The, the thing is, though, you're a good human being. And so you didn't open the document until you had finished it and then left a bunch of comments saying your notes are invalid. These are yeah. not true. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, Sophie is a huge fan of murder mysteries. Um, so she's got a lot lot to say about this one. This was a really interesting read for me. I When I read it, I thought it reminded me a lot of Lord of the Flies. I don't think, you, you said you hadn't uh, read Lord of the Flies, but it's a very similar setup. There's a group of people who end up on a desert island and then things turn haywire very quickly. And the setup of Lord of the Flies is a bunch of English schoolboys are crashed on a desert island and then they turn savage. And in a similar way, these, the characters in this story turn savage, but in a different, very different way. So I think that will be very interesting to talk about.
0: I think so, too. A little bit of background on Agatha Christie. So she is incredibly widely published and shockingly popular. Did you were you aware of the fact that she is the third most best selling author of all time? She's behind the Bible and Shakespeare.
1: I did not know that. I, I mean, I I just like recently learned that I was pretty, pretty impressed. That's very surprising, too.
0: She wrote 80 novels and I think four works of nonfiction. And she wrote something like 14 plays, including The Mousetrap, which is, if I remember correctly, the longest running play of all time, which is incredible. I saw it on stage one time. And the plot twist at the end is so good that the cast literally comes out at the end of every performance to ask the audience not to spoil the ending until... (laughs) their friends can go see it. (laughs) Um, It's that good.
1: Well, Agatha Christie was the master of the plot twist for sure. But also I think one of the things that makes her so popular is just the genre that she was writing into. And I think she did a lot in contributing to defining the genre of the mystery thriller. Although I think in some sense it was a development of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I think there's something about mystery thrillers which are more, which are strangely universally ap- appealing. And I thought a lot about like why it's so popular, but I don't know if there's any other genre that's more popular than mystery thrillers. Sherlock Holmes is the most widely portrayed character in the history of Hollywood cinema. Uh, the number one genre that dominates Netflix shows is true crime. And then, of course, we have Agatha Christie here. So... Uh, makes me wonder, like, what is it about mystery thrillers that you think people like about, like them so much?
0: Well, it's not just why do we love mystery thrillers, but why this mystery thriller in particular. Because this is one of Agatha Christie's most popular novels, if not her most popular. And it might be the best-selling and most popular murder mystery ever written. So... It's the gold standard of the genre, but as we're going to talk about later, it actually breaks a lot of the typical tropes that we find in this kind of story. So another question that we're going to be thinking about is why is this murder mystery, which really doesn't follow a lot of the typical tropes of the murder mystery, why is this one so popular? Why does this one stand out?
1: Yeah, and like, why is it considered the quintessential gold standard if it's already so subversive? Right. But I also think maybe it's par for the course because I think that subverting expectations and misleading people is actually the defining characteristic of the mystery thriller. Um, so maybe that's why it make, that makes it quintessential.
0: Speaking of subverting expectations and the plot of this book, I'm about to give you a little plot summary, but please, please, I beg you, if you don't know this story and you haven't read it, Please go read it. It's very plot twist heavy and going into it blind is really good.
1: There's going to be spoilers in this episode. So yes. if you know you, you you don't like spoilers, then this definitely not for you. But if you're fine with spoilers, we, we like having more listeners. So, you know, you <laughs> can, I'm fine with you. Stick around. It's, it's it's like it's up to you. It's your loss. You know, if you want to be spoiled.
0: We're torn between the nobility of wanting you to experience this story without having it spoiled (laughs) for you and wanting you to listen to our voices.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So without uh, any further ado, let's jump right into the plot.
0: Yes. So the basic premise of this story is that there are 10 people. uh, They all live in England and they're all invited to stay for this summer vacation at an island called Soldier Island. And each one of them receives a letter from someone named U.N. Owen. The initials U.N. and then the last name Owen. And this individual, to all of them, gives some sort of reason why they should come to the island. Usually it's, oh, I'm friends with a mutual friend of ours. We're connected by three degrees or whatever. You should come spend a few days in late August at my island. And so they all go and they're all complete strangers at the time that they show up at this island. When they show up, they find out that their host, Mr. Owen, is actually not even there. And he sent this telegram that says, I've been delayed, I'll come tomorrow. For all of you listening, that's a major red flag. Get off the island if you find out that the person you've never met and is supposed to be hosting you is not on the island. Uh, But they spend the night on the island. And then when they're there... They all notice that there's the same poem, 10 Little Soldiers, that's hanging up in all of their rooms. Uh, and that's the same poem that I read just a few minutes ago. And they think, "Oh, it's Soldier Island. Oh, it's 10 Little Soldiers. That's really cute." And they don't realize what's about to happen to them.
1: If if for Americ for American audiences that also may not have the same connection because that was obviously a nursery rhyme that English British school children would have known growing up.
0: So not even immediately uh, a red flag or not even instantly ominous.
1: It sounds a little creepy to us, but probably not to them. Kind of like how Rockabye yeah. Baby is kind of creepy if you think about it. But because you grew up listening to it, it doesn't <laughs> sound so... It's not a red flag for you.
0: So there's this poem hanging up in all of their rooms. And after dinner, I think that first night that they're there, um, suddenly there's this voice that echoes through the room and it lists all of the guests that are there all 10 of them and for each guest it tells them the murder they committed so you committed this murder of this person at this time and for almost everyone it's precise to the day and the month and the year and specifies who they murdered and of course everyone denies it but they all seem a little shaken they all seem like there might be some truth into what the voice is saying and very quickly one of the guests uh takes a sip of the drink that he's been drinking and dies of asphyxiation because there's poison and they realize oh the first soldier boy in the poem uh dies by choking this first person dies by asphyxiation oh no (laughs) something's going on here
1: Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the key characters uh, like Vera and uh, Wargrave and who's the other guy? Uh, Lombard, that sort of thing. I mean, some of their crimes specifically.
0: Vera Claythorne is accused and is guilty of uh, killing a child, actually. So she was a governess to a young boy and she was in love with this boy's relative who, I forget the exact, the, the way that this would have happened, but this man that Vera is in love with, whose name is Hugo, he would have inherited his family's money, except for this boy who was born, who ended up being the next closest of kin and was going to inherit the money. And so Vera, in order to get the money for her lover, uh, allows this boy to drown. She's supposed to be watching over him. She allows him to try and swim out to this far off rock and lets him drown intentionally. Um, but he's never caught for it because there's no evidence of it um, and she's well-protected. There's another character whose name is Lombard who is accused of leaving... Uh, I think he was in South Africa, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And he was involved in a situation where he left a bunch of natives to die and he is not at all remorseful about that and he admits it right away because he says they're not important they don't really matter there's a justice a judge named justice wargrave who is accused of convincing a jury to hang or to sentence an innocent man um just because he didn't like this man
1: um there's blore who's a detective and um he co- convicted a a uh, a criminal who i think was innocent
0: Yes. And he actually yeah.
1: personally knows Justice Wargrave, so they're connected that way. There's a Puritan woman. What was her name? Emily Brent. Emily Brent. She was guilty of putting a huge amount of moral pressure on a governess, I think, of her house. And the governess was driven to suicide, part in part because of the way that she treated her. Um, she doesn't feel particularly guilty about that either. No. So there's varying degrees of guilt. Some of them feel bad. Almost all of them deny it. They all say that in some sense they're not actually guilty for it.
0: For example, the first, um, the first one to die, his name is Marston, and his crime is that he was involved in a hit and run accident so he is given to speeding he likes to speed in his car and he hits two children i believe um and the children are killed in that accident there's also a doctor named dr armstrong who operated while drunk and he killed his patient but of course there's no evidence of that so he was never convicted so the the common thread through all of these people and the crimes that they've committed is that they all killed someone due to an error even if the error wasn't intentional to some fault of theirs. They did something wrong, and that mm-hmm. resulted in someone's death. And in all of those cases, they couldn't be prosecuted. So there's no way that the law could catch up with them in a traditional sense because there isn't enough evidence, or, you know, in the case of Justice Wargrave, he's a judge, so you could never touch him, that sort of thing. That's the common thread running through all of these victims. The, the rest of the novel basically just goes through each guest one at a time, They are all uh, killed mysteriously in a way that echoes the poem, in the order of the poem. So the first one asphyxiates when he drinks some poison. The next one is killed in her sleep. So she overslept herself, uh, echoing the poem, etc. So we go through all of them. And they realize at some point that because there's no one else on the island, and they search carefully so they know no one else is there, they realize the murderer... And their host, so U.N. Owen, and they realize that U.N. Owen actually is a play on words, and it means unknown. So their host that has called them there is actually disguising himself as one of them. So one of them is the murderer, but they don't know who it is.
1: Yeah, and there's another thing that the murderer is apparently doing, that there's ten, ten China soldiers on the table, and every single time there's a murder, one of the China soldiers is disappearing, adding an extra element of creepiness to the whole thing.
0: So they're basically fish in a barrel. They know what's happening. They know that they're all getting picked off one by one. And as the story progresses, we as the reader don't know who the murderer is. And we're trying to figure out which one of them is it. Because we know it has to be one of the ten. And we get to the very end and there are three left. Uh, One of them dies and we're left with two. One of the ones who's left is Vera, who's the woman who allowed a child to die. Uh, And she shoots the other one. So she's and, then, the and it's one. Lombard.
1: The other one we've talked yes, about. The one, we've talked about Lombard.
0: Yeah, who left the natives, and she, uh, after killing Lombard, assumes that she's safe. She knows that she's the last one on the island.
1: And she's not the murderer either.
0: And she's not the murderer. And she says, "I've won. Like I beat the murderer, whoever it was it, that that person died." She walks back up to the house, walks inside, goes up to her room sees that there's a rope that has been left there for her and she walks up to the rope and she hangs herself just like the poem predicted and that's actually where the story ends and we don't get the solution until an epilogue Uh, and the epilogue comes in the form of a letter that the actual murderer wrote and threw into the sea for someone to find and it turns out that the murderer was justice wargrave the judge And it turns out that he is the only one, ostensibly, who didn't actually commit the crime that he was accused of. And he orchestrated the whole thing because he knew that these people were outside the reach of the law. And also because he... it's a little bit of an egotistical crime. It's that he knows that he would be good at it. He knows he would be good at accomplishing a murder. And he wants to try his hand at it. And so part of the point of the conclusion is that he he writes the solution. He writes out what he did because he's confident that no one will be able to figure it out. And, and nobody so does. Yeah, nobody does. The the description of the epilogue says that the letter is found by a fishing boat or something and sent to Scotland Yard, so presumably his letter solves it. But he's the only one who tells the police eventually through this written note that was thrown into the sea, how he did it. Um, And the one other relevant plot detail is that the reason he goes through with this whole crime uh, is that he is already dying of some sort of illness. So he is disguised as one of the guests, meaning he is Wargrave. He's one of the guests. And he fakes his death wherever he dies or is supposed to die in the lineup. I think he's the fifth one to die yeah so he fakes his death and then for the rest of the story is moving around unseen on the island bringing about everyone else's deaths and then after vera kills herself at the very end he goes and he also recreates the death that was supposed to happen halfway through and then it's a nice neat little murder the police show up everyone's dead on the island uh nobody knows who did it and nobody solves the crime right that's the more or less the basic plot of the novel
1: Yeah, and I think that that's a good segue into talking about the subversiveness of the way that this mystery novel moves. Um, One of the things that I observed about this is, first of all, almost all of the victims are completely inadequate in coming to solving the mystery. Particularly the person that we would expect... To be the voice of reason, that is the detective. Mystery th- thrillers are always hinged on the detective as being the, well, the being the reliable narrator. The person who's going to figure out the crime. Right. Uh, well, Bloor dies. The detective dies. And also, secondly, he, he's not really that good at, at, at solving the crime. He comes up with some co- sort of generic detective observations. Yep. Sort of the things that a detective or... Uh, an average policeman might observe, but none of them actually end up leading them anywhere.
0: Well, also one one thing that's frustrating about reading the book is that the minute before anyone has even died, the minute you read the poem, you as the reader know where this is going. You know exactly what's going to happen, and then of course you're still engrossed in watching it happen. What's interesting is how that plays out. But the whole time you're telling these characters, why in the world aren't you making the connection? This poem is giving you the blueprints for how how the murders are happening. And they they realize that at some point, but they don't use that to help them solve the mystery.
1: Exactly. It takes them way too long for them to figure out that there's a correlation. First of all, they just mention it like, oh, that's kind of cute. How ironic. And then it keeps on going and they're like, oh, maybe there's actually something to this. And it's Vera, actually. Vera is the first one who actually identifies the correlation in a kind of fit of frenzy. Saying, oh my gosh, you know, but she doesn't actually address it in a rational way. She addresses it emotionally in this kind of, in a, in a fit that she's having. But she doesn't actually say, hey, look, there's a correlation. There's a way for us to solve the mystery, which I think is really interesting. Because there's two things where the murderer is obviously trying to give himself away, at least not intentionally. He wants to be clever and artistic. So he's got these ten little soldier soldiers, and then he's got the poem. And both of those, if that is just like evidence that you're just putting out in the open, you're leaving your fingerprints right out there. And the detective is going after all of these other, like, you know, rabbit trails on, on finding clues. Vera's the only one who points out that there's a correlation, but she doesn't actually apply that to solving the problem. Like, doesn't bring the rationality into it. I mean, think about it. If the murderer is following this poem, you could actually look at it as a map and like predict the time and place and location and manner of the next murder and that could help you figure out who it is and also if there's little soldiers that the murderer is coming and he's and he's breaking them you could check for fragments of the soldiers and there actually was evidence of that of broken soldiers you could look at that and check that for fingerprints um you also know that every single time there's a murderer the murderer Every single time there's a murder, the murderer is going to be in the kitchen at some point to dispose of the soldiers, so you could like monitor that and see who's going who's going into the kitchen and throwing away the soldiers. There's a place of evidence where you could start as a platform for solving the mystery, but nobody actually brings that up. Nobody uses that. So, that's really I mean like it 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 also makes me think it suggests the idea that the poem and the soldiers are almost kind of a separate thing. They're a separate part of it. It's not actually. There's a different. It's it's a literary device. There's something else that's going on. It's part of Agatha Christie's whole uh, artistic flair that she's bringing into it. But she doesn't really want the characters to use the this to solve the problem. And part of that is the characters' own irrationality. But We also want to ask ourselves, what else is going on there? And why aren't they... What is the source of this sort of psychological blindness?
0: I think part of the reason is that these people all know that they're guilty. In some sense, they're all very aware of the fact that what is happening to them is something that they have coming. Even if that's not a conscious realization, I think that's very much a subconscious realization. And the one person who is the most clear about that i think is general macarthur who i don't think we've mentioned so far but he his crime is that he discovered at one point that his wife was having an affair and he was so angry that she was having this affair and the affair she was having was with one of his subordinates in the army and so he sends this subordinate out to die in very much a, a david and uriah sort of situation And very quickly, he seems like he just sort of gives up. And he spends a lot of time sitting out on the island, staring at the ocean. And he says, best of an island is once you get there, you can't go any further. You've come to the end of things. And that's the end of his quote. He knew suddenly that he didn't want to leave the island. And then later, um, he says, that's peace, real peace, to come to the end, not to have to go on um and then when someone else is talking to him about how we're gonna make it off and it's gonna be okay and he says no we're all waiting for the end you'll be glad too when the end comes so i think that this is something that he's really clear about but it's something that at least subconsciously is going on in a lot of the other characters heads which is that they are aware of the fact that they deserve what's coming to them they know that they're guilty of these crimes even if they're saying That they don't believe they are even if they're defending themselves out loud and i think that's part of the reason that they're inadequate in solving it is to solve it would be to acknowledge that there's a rhyme and reason to what's happening Uh, you find out later that wargrave was intentionally killing people in order of their guilt and that's another thing that would help them (laughs) Uh, to to discuss openly the crimes that they did commit and confess those crimes is a clue to solving the mystery because clearly that's part of the motivation for the murderer to kill them, but they don't do it and because they're not willing to face their own pasts, I think that that's part of what they're repressing. That's part of what they're intentionally ignoring, and that's part of what makes it impossible for them to look at the actual clues that would help them solve the mystery.
1: I never thought of that before, actually. And that makes a lot of sense because initially when I was reading it, I just thought it was bad writing that are just like, you know, you're not obviously going for the things that you could do to solve the mystery. But now (laughs) that you're, now that you say it in that way, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that also brings out an insight into human nature, which I think Agatha Christie was exposing very well.
0: So speaking of things that the characters should notice, Uh, as clues to help them solve the mystery and then don't notice the poem literally mentions a red herring so there's the line four little soldier boys going out to sea. a red herring swallowed one and then there were three so the fourth to last to die is dr armstrong who's the doctor who operated while drunk and killed his patient and he disappears uh And they don't notice for a while the fact that the poem literally says a red herring swallowed one. And then that instance, the instance of Dr. Armstrong's disappearance and the red herring ends up being a really pivotal plot point and maybe key to unlocking some of the major themes of the book. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about how that red herring imagery or that idea plays into the rest of the book?
1: Well, Agatha Christie has been praised as being the master of the red herring, and I think that's why, ultimately, she's considered to be the master of mystery, because mysteries depend on a red herring. They depend on misleading us, and this is a great example of how she does this, because one of the ways a red herring misleads us is because it's so attractive. It's bait that we all take, and the way that a red herring you successfully construct a red herring is to give you the answer hiding. You know, the answer is staring you right in the face, but somehow there's a kind of mental blindness that the author manages to construct around the obvious answer and misleads you to make you think something else. And Agatha Christie does this in a lot of different ways. First of all, she states explicitly That there's going to be a red herring. Which Vera kind of picks up on, but she misinterprets it. She misinterprets thinking a red herring means Armstrong isn't really dead, she's he's alive, meaning that Armstrong is the real Armstrong is the real murderer. Where it turns out, while she was on the right track, that wasn't actually the correct interpretation of the red herring. Justice Roargrave also employed the red herring, but He did it in a much different way because he used the poem The Red Herring to actually deliberately mislead people so that they would interpret The Red Herring in a certain way. I'm taking a really long long time to explain it because it's kind of complicated because there's so many twists and turns here. But Justice Wargrave faked his death. He conspired with Armstrong. And he said, he went up to Armstrong and said, hey, let's fake my death so that we'll freak out the murderer. Armstrong takes the bait. Then Justice Wargrave takes Armstrong out alone and pushes him over the cliff and kills him. And so that, and Armstrong's death is a red herring swallowed one. I don't know if I explained that very well at all.
0: I think you did great.
1: (laughs) But, But the point is, Vera thinks the red herring means Armstrong is still alive, whereas in reality, the red herring meant that uh, Justice Wargrave was the the real murderer and Armstrong was the scapegoat. And so that's the very clever plot twist that this mystery hinges on. And I think that gives us a uh, a place to sort of zoom out and talk about what makes this a brilliant mystery thriller in general um, because of the plot twist. I think that all mystery thrillers, they depend on this plot twist. And I would say they depend on a scapegoat. And I would go so far to say that if you don't have a scapegoat, you're not writing a mystery thriller. We have established that the mystery thriller is one of the most popular genres of all time. There's a universal appeal to it. So we first have to ask ourselves, okay, why is it universally appealing? Then we have to ask ourselves, well, it has something to do with some fundamental characteristic of the mystery thriller which people gravitate towards and maybe invites us to explore some fundamental heart, uh, some fundamental element of myths and stories and human nature. And when we examine the fundamental characteristic of the mystery thriller, we find that it is defined by the scapegoat. So the scapegoat is what makes a mystery thriller a mystery thriller. You have to mislead someone based on rational evidence that someone is guilty who is not really guilty. And then that person usually gets killed. The scapegoat gets killed and then there's the plot twist And the information is recontextualized in a new light. What we see is you can look at the the whole story from the beginning. And given the provided information, the person whom you have originally deemed was guilty has to be guilty. By all the dictates of logic, Armstrong had to be guilty. Because Justice Wargrave died. He was the only person left. He had to be guilty. Um, Logically. But it turns out there's an alternative explanation. When the plot twist happens, new information is provided to us which recontextualizes everything that we previously understood about it. Even though our previous interpretation was perfectly rational, it's no longer uh, rational once we have this additional bit of information which changes everything. So I think that that really is the heart of... Almost what all stories depend on. And I think in this sense, you could say that all stories are mystery novels in some form or another. I might say, you know, you know, like you look at Harry Potter and, you know, in my opinion, I think Harry Potter is basically just mystery thrillers with extra special effects. Now, that... <laughs> That might get people upset, but you have to say something upsetting so that people will write to you. So <laughs> somebody needs to comment. <laughs> write to us, listeners. Is Harry Potter just mystery thrillers with extra special effects? <laughs> um, but all stories depend on concealing information, making you think one thing, and then having a turn of events which, in which the truth is revealed and you realize that you were wrong. I mean, and that's part of why we enjoy it we enjoy the turn of events that makes us discover we were wrong about the way we interpreted things i think that if we look at the mystery novel and then we look about at stories there's something about that which runs parallel to the way the christian narrative moves and fundamental to understanding how uh, the christian narrative functions that's that's what hinges that's what the christian narrative hinges on it hinges on a scapegoat. And when Christ came to, the, to, to the preach the gospel to the Pharisees and to the Jews, one of the things that he was doing is he was taking all of the texts of the Old Testament narratives and he was recontextualizing them. Just like this poem, this poem which is the prophecy, the judgment of all of these guilty people, um, is interpreted in one way. Turns out to have an alternative interpretation. Christ was doing a similar thing. He was taking the Old Testament prophecies of judgment and he was saying, the message that I'm going to be giving is different. I'm going to interpret all of these prophecies in a different way, and I'm going to be the fulfillment of these prophecies. And that upsets people. They murder an innocent victim and he is the scapegoat is killed. And then there's a plot twist which recontextualizes the entire narrative thrust of the Old Testament. By making that kind of connection between mystery thrillers and the Gospels, I think that that's more of a general analysis of mystery thrillers in general. But we want to kind of zero in and say okay, what is it about this mystery thriller particularly which relates to Christology and relates to um,
0: I think all that's really valid and good analysis Uh, i do i do think it's worth pointing out that one of the things i think that makes this story and a lot of murder mysteries dark is the fact that it's using the fundamental scapegoat idea or the scapegoat narrative but it's using it in a universe in which there the scapegoat isn't a a lamb without blemish (laughs) it's not a good sacrifice um dr armstrong is very much guilty and he's being used by someone who is intentionally picking off these people one by one. Uh, In other words, there aren't good people in this story. So while there's absolutely a a scapegoat and the idea of recontextualizing what you thought was true into what is actually true is definitely a valid connection to make. I also think it's important that uh, the scapegoat and the ultimate reveal doesn't reveal a good sacrifice or a lamb without blemish instead it reveals only bad people really there's no one good here
1: right so there always needs to be some kind of scapegoat to sort of satisfy the dissatisfaction and wrath of the group let's say but the yeah. problem with all scapegoats is that the scape in order for the scapegoat to end the cycle of violence the scapegoat has to be actually innocent what's the case in the case of Armstrong he is innocent of the crime he's being accused of but he's not innocent per se he is actually guilty of murder he's just not guilty of the murder of all the individuals that we assume that he's guilty of and that's why this story ultimately ends with fa- failure and then there were none right there's uh there's there, there are none who understand there are none who seek after god
0: what do you think about the fact that there are so many elements in this story that seem really supernatural? Because in a, in a detective story, or in the typical murder mystery detective story, everything turns out very logically. So, um, for example, Ag- a lot of Agatha Christie's most popular mystery novels feature a detective, uh, her Hercule Poirot stories are very famous and the thing that's sort of characteristic about Poirot as a detective he's this Belgian detective who sees the world in black and white and because he sees things really starkly in terms of good and bad and right and wrong he notices every small imperfection and that's what makes him a good detective he's so logical He's incredibly analytical and everything has a rational explanation. And that's typically a feature of the murder mystery is that even if it seems like there's a ghost in the attic, uh, even if it seems like something supernatural is going on, there actually ends up being a really rational explanation for it. But it seems like in this story, there might be some supernatural elements that sort of can't be explained 100% rationally so do you have any thoughts about that or why that's going on here
1: yeah i couldn't help but notice that once we realize justice wargrave is the culprit we can go back and look at the way that he accomplished his task and when you think about it he actually leaves quite a lot up to chance so in one sense he's a genius and he's a sociopathic genius and he planned all of this out and technically all of it is technically possible it's within the realm of plausible reality at least from a physical point of view he was always in the right place in the right time there's no inconsistencies in that sense there's no places where he would have to be in two places at once everything kind of just works out rationally however there are a lot of things in his plan that he couldn't have possibly possibly have accounted for um for example the weather is constantly conveniently aiding his murders uh there's a storm which quote unquote covers up the imagined gunshot which is, enables him to fake his own death and so they say well the reason why you didn't hear the gunshot is because there was a storm outside even though there was no gunshot i mean he couldn't have planned that there was going to be a storm that covers up his gunshot sound and also secondly the sun comes out just in time for the next murder the soldier who is uh died shriveled up in the sun so again that's another thing that depends on uh the weather and lastly he couldn't have predicted that vera would have pickpocketed lombard's gun and then shoot him and also how could he have perf- uh, perfectly predicted with precision that she would walk up to our room and kill herself um she couldn't Although
0: this is just a side note i think that's his most reasonable i think that's the most rational prediction i think it says something about his knowledge of the guilty mind that allows yeah. him to make that prediction but i'm 100 with you on the rest of them like there's no way that he would be able to know that all of those things would help him accomplish his task
1: right right i mean yeah okay that's that's valid but i mean like the way getting her to that point right yeah. and also the way that he kills himself he sets up this kind of I almost chuckled to myself how elaborate his suicide mechanism was. He like tied up the gun to like a rubber band so that when it uh, when it triggered the rubber the gun would fly away from him. Yep. Which, you know, it's a pretty elaborate little machine that you've got set up there, and uh, you can't guarantee, especially after you're dead, that not <laughs> that everything is going to go right. Well- also, as a little as
0: a little side comment just about, like, the psychology of his character, there's no reason for him to do that except that he wants everyone who comes to the island afterward to see the story that he created. Because they could show up and they could see, like, they wouldn't, if he killed himself, sure, like, he committed suicide, but that doesn't necessarily peg him as the murderer. It just means that... He killed himself at some point somehow, but it's so important to him that when the police come to the island, when everyone discovers the bodies, they don't just see a bunch of dead people and wonder how it happened. They need to see his story. They need to be able to see that it was the poem, which I think is wild. It just says something about who he is and how precise he is and how he wants this all to go down.
1: Yeah, but well, to answer your original question, though, about the supernatural, I think that the fact that all of these things aid him in a kind of coincidental way implies or leaves the question open-ended whether there was something supernatural about it. Um, I think modern novels often have a lot of hesitancy of introducing the supernatural in it. Um, But also, if you're going to write a thriller or a horror, you can't not have the supernatural in it. At least it needs to be implied at least. Or there's just no flavor to your story. And so I think that there's part of it where Agatha Christie is presenting two alternative ways of looking at the world. And she's not really stating which one. And you, you can't really push it either way, but it, it's there. And there's a quote where Vera actually explicitly mentions the supernatural. And she's having a conversation with Lombard where she says, Don't you feel all the time that there's someone someone watching and waiting? Lombard said slowly, that's just the nerves. Vera said eagerly, then you have felt it. She shivered. She bent a little closer. I read a story once about two judges that came from to a small American town from the Supreme Court. They administered justice, absolute justice, because they didn't come from this world at all. Lombard raised his eyebrows. Heavenly visitants, eh? No, I don't believe in the supernatural. This business is human enough. Vera said in a low voice, Sometimes I'm not sure. Lombard said, That's conscience. <laughs> there seems to be a double way of interpreting that. When Vera says there's someone watching and waiting, you could look at it from the purely crime-solving Uh, perspective in saying, of course, the person watching and waiting is Justice Wargrave. But when you take into account the fact that Justice Wargrave needs a whole long string of coincidences to make his plan work, then maybe there really is something else watching and waiting that isn't just Justice Wargrave. And maybe the theory that there is something supernatural coming along going on here is correct. So, Sophie, you kind of compiled all of the different places where judgment is mentioned here. Does that kind of tie in to tie into that?
0: Yes, I think so. Um, really early on, there's this man on the train who never appears again, but he's described as a prophet sort of character. He's this old sailor, and he tells, I forget which character it is, but he tells one of the characters on the way to the island, watch and pray, watch and pray. The day of judgment is at hand. And that was the first point where I started going through and collecting every single quote where they mentioned judgment. And it's a lot. Uh, there's characters' eyes are described as showing judgment. Um, the character, he's the Puritan woman. She reads the Bible in her room before any of the murders have happened. And the verse that she reads is, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, and the net which they hid is their own foot taken." The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Which obviously is the perfect setup for the rest of the book because that's what happens to them. Their sin finds them out. Which is something specifically that the Puritan woman says later, Emily Brent. She says, your sin will find you out. Also, after the voice initially reads off the list of crimes, says... You are accused of this. You are accused of this. Every single person has committed a murder. The housekeeper, one of the housekeepers, faints. And when they revive her, she says, it was the voice, that awful voice, like a judgment. That's definitely a through line that, especially at the beginning of the story, is being set up, that all these people are coming to this island to be judged for these crimes that they did commit, except for Justice Wargrave, who's coming here to judge, not to be judged and yet he's coming here to commit a crime of his own which i think brings us to the fact that justice wargrave is the the persona of the law in this story and yet he isn't sympathetic he isn't even a good person he's the murderer which it's shocking to me how different that is from the standard murder mystery because in your standard murder mystery even in your standard agatha christie mystery There's a detective who is a sympathetic character, who's a a good person, or at least who has a very strong sense of right and wrong, like with Hercule Poirot. And that detective represents the law. And the, the phrasing that you might hear is that this detective is here to bring this criminal to justice. So even though something bad has happened, even though something in the world isn't quite right, this detective, this man of the law, is here to set it right. And this book isn't like that at all. The man of the law is here to kill people, (laughs) even though those people committed murders of their own. So like I said earlier, there are no good people in this story. This story doesn't have any good guys, and I think that's part of the reason why there's no one left at the end of the story. That's the judgment upon all of them.
1: Right, and this is exactly why this story made me think of Lord of the Flies, because in some sense, I might even argue that it's the antithesis of Lord of the Flies— because the message of Lord of the Flies is fundamentally without the law, there is only savagery. The boys, the English schoolboys who are marooned on this island in Lord of the Flies keep on trying to appeal to the rules, appeal to the law. And in that instance, the law is good. It's the semblance of sanity, which they keep on clinging to. And once the law is stripped away, then what's underneath is just nothingness. There's no real human civility, and that's how the story turns from civility into a nightmare. That's the message of Lord of the Flies. This is the exact opposite of that. It's the same setup, but it's the exact opposite because throughout the entire story, at least for the majority of the story, the law is the cause of the savagery, and the law is there. Justice Wargrave is the one who is killing people, The literally a person named Justice. So, in unlike the Lord of the Flies, in Agatha Christie's version, the law offers you no comfort or protection. And it offers you no protection from sin. And one of the things that all of these characters are so frightened by is the fact that they committed these crimes um, within the law, and yet... They're the law. They're still being hunted down.
0: Well, it reminds me too of Beowulf, because in Beowulf, part of the point of the story is that Grendel, who, if you're familiar with the story of Beowulf, Grendel is this monster who shows up uh, every single night to raid and to terrorize the mead hall of King Hrothgar, and King Hrothgar has to send across the sea for this Dane named Beowulf, who is known to be very strong and a good warrior, and Beowulf is going to come and fight Grendel. And one common and, I think, accurate interpretation of Beowulf is that Grendel is a representation of a blood feud. So the idea is that the culture at that time that Beowulf was written was very much a culture in which one, someone from one nation or one small settlement would go and murder someone from some other settlement or some other family and then in order to retaliate in order to get revenge someone from the other settlement would come and murder someone and then they would have to be in a constant battle in order to resolve the fact that there was a crime committed but that crime just leads to another crime just leads to another crime and eventually no one knows what the crime is that they're trying to bring justice for because there's just blood it's a blood feud And Grendel is supposed to be the symbolic representation of the blood feud. And Beowulf comes to kill the blood feud, (laughs) to destroy it. Uh, And I think that in this story, we actually see a more modern representation of that same idea, which is that Justice Wargrave comes to do something that is, in some sense, an administration of justice, because all these people really are guilty. They really did commit murders, (laughs) sometimes really horrific murders but that doesn't mean that justice wargrave is a hero or a good man for killing them in some sense he's just perpetuating the blood feud (laughs) he is killing in response to killing but because there's something twisted about it because it's the work of one psychotic individual all it does is perpetuate The fact that there is blood for blood for blood for blood for blood. And I think the story doesn't have a Beowulf in it. It doesn't have someone who comes and resolves the blood feud and kills Grendel, kills the monster. Um, It leaves that open at the end of the story. How are we supposed to think about justice and about how to resolve the blood feud in a world where the law, which is supposed to protect us, we think, which is supposed to bring justice really doesn't bring justice but just perpetuates a cycle of blood that's pretty dark but i think in some sense that's the world that the, that the book leaves us with
1: and i think if we accept it as a valid interpretation that wargrave is in fact the law that leads us with some interesting and probably very uncomfortable questions um which is, I think, maybe conducive to Christianity. I think that Jesus did make a lot of people uncomfortable, especially since his main villains uh, villains um, at the time were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the law abiders. But yeah. one of the things that Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of is that uh, you may keep the law, but there's an internal state of mind which renders you still guilty. And that was part of the mental images that he brought up, like whoever hates his brother has already committed murder in his heart, and whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with them. You clean the outside, but you don't clean the inside. This was part of the way that Jesus was saying, no matter what you do, you're still guilty. The law, the real law, that is not not the Pharisees' law, but God's law, is so perfect that it destroys everyone. And so we know we accept God, God's justice as a fundamental attribute of attribute of God. So if we accept Wargrave as the law, what does that make of God? And what does that make of justice? It seems that Wargrave is obviously a very evil person. He's a very bad guy. Um, what does that make of all the Psalmists and the Psalms who talk about how I love your law? Is it a good thing to celebrate the law is if this is what it leads to? Um, I think that's a really big question. And also what are we to make of the fact that Wargrave, who is obviously evil and obviously a villain kind of gets away with his, uh, his, his crimes. Um, that's another way that this mystery thriller is kind of subversive. Because in some sense, Wargrave is making a a he, he's making a Faustian deal with the devil, right? And if we were to follow a biblically informed Christian narrative like Faust was, that means that your sin does come back to haunt you, right? That's what a biblically informed narrative would do. Like in the case of Faust, Faust made a deal with the devil, but he had to trade his soul in return. Here in this case, uh, Wargrave had some kind of supernatural aid. He had to, which means he must have made a deal with the devil. But it turns out in this case, the devil maybe just kept his word, apparently, because Wargrave gets what he wants. He kills everyone, and he kills himself, and his ridiculous rubber band mechanism somehow works, which I think... (laughs) which I don't think it should have worked, but it did. So what is Agatha Christie saying there when she makes the, fi- I think that is probably fundamentally the most subversive plot twist of all. The fact that the perpetrator in this story, um, who is the main catalytic force behind everything, um, ultimately gets away with what he does. What does that say about justice? What does that say about God?
0: Well, I think one thing that might be the, the key to thinking about that and something we have sort of touched on but haven't really talked about is the fact that none of these characters at any point in the story are repentant for what they've done. They either deny it. They either say, no, I didn't do that uh, and, and lie to cover it up. Or like in the case of Lombard, Lombard admits it. He says, sure, yeah, I did that. But he's completely unapologetic. He doesn't think it was a bad thing to do. Um, And even if it was, he doesn't really care. That's not important to him. And I think that's sort of essential, that this is not just a story about what happens to guilty people, as if this is the fate of every guilty person, because part of the message of the story seems to be everyone's guilty. Uh, There's no one good. There were none good at the end of the story. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And yet... I think there's maybe a suggestion, and I touched on this a little earlier. I think there's maybe a suggestion that had they confessed, had they expressed remorse and told the truth about their sin when it's exposed to them in the form of the voice at the beginning. I think that there's a s- suggestion that they might make it off the island in that case. That they might actually yeah. be able to outsmart the murderer If they repented and that that's the thing this story is completely devoid of, that justice in the law is merciless and is not there to help you if you're unrepentant, but that that picture might look a little different in a world where the characters do repent.
1: Right. and This kind of goes back to what you were saying is that the characters are actually participating in actively preventing themselves from being saved by muddying up the water because part of their uh anonymity is that did i say that right
0: yeah (laughs) i think so (laughs) anonymity anonymity
1: (laughs) anonymity depends on them remaining in the darkness so actually you know they're concealing their guilt actually is what helps them uh which is what causes all of these murders to happen so they It's not in their best interest if they want to continue concealing their guilt to solve the problem. Well,
0: right. And Vera, Vera kills herself. She doesn't have to. No one makes her. She doesn't have to kill herself. But at least the way I read that final scene, she does it so she doesn't have to face what she did. That her alternative would be to return to the world and open herself up to the fact that this is a thing she did because one running through line throughout the entire book is that she doesn't want to think about it she keeps telling herself don't remember don't remember hugo don't remember what happened and she's plagued by these flashbacks because she doesn't want to remember and i think part of the reason that she kills herself in the end is to avoid that to avoid facing her sin which is really i think the clincher for the whole book is that if she did if she were willing to face her sin she at least could make it out, potentially. Because for Wargrave really to accomplish what he set out to do, which is to recreate the poem, she has to kill herself. He can't kill her. And so not killing herself would be thwarting him. But she doesn't, because she doesn't want to remember, she doesn't want to face her sin.
1: I think it'd be great if we could open this up to our listeners. But it seems that, you know, there's is there kind of an underlying cynicism which this story is predicated on? Because Justice Wargrave is, you know, taking a risk and he is acting on the assumption that nobody is going to admit their faults. And if this were a story where good ultimately triumphed over evil, he would have been thwarted by that. Someone would have admitted that there were faults that they were guilty and by doing that would have thwarted his plan but he assumes that they won't and they don't so what does that really ultimately say about human nature what is agatha christie saying about human nature Um, what is this story saying about justice is it saying that there's really no such thing as justice or is it possible that this story is saying something positive about justice
0: if you would like to answer that question you should email us or leave a comment on Instagram. I think those are the only two ways to contact us.
1: (laughs) That's unreliable narrators stoa at gmail.com unreliable narrators stoa S T O A at gmail.com write to us. Tell us what you think. Let me know if you are angry at our Harry Potter comment. (laughs) Maybe we will come to us
0: on a future podcast if you're particularly belligerent i'm just kidding you'll be (laughs) belligerent
1: (laughs) if you're angry enough we might just invite you on it's true (laughs) well uh we really appreciate all of you listening to our podcast and uh we want to leave that question open-ended and let you and uh we'd like to hear what you think
0: thanks for listening
1: we'll see you in a couple weeks
0: you've been listening to unreliable narrators a stoa mars hill podcast Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or email us at unreliablenarrators.stoa@gmail.com at gmail.com and let us know what piece on the STOA Mars Hill list you would like to hear discussed next. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens. And our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperin. In our next episode, we'll be discussing Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Until then, friends, two podcasters talked for much too long. They turned off the mic, and then there were none. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide
1: So much more in you.